Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those words, a reminder that we were bought at a price, at the cost of your son's life. So we pray very much that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to understand what that means to belong to you and to live your way. Please open our eyes to understand this bit of scripture. Amen. I wonder what your sense of direction is like. In our family, we're, we are all somewhere on a bit of a spectrum. At one end of it, there are some members of the family who have this uncanny ability, wherever we are, to know exactly where they are and which way they're facing. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there are some who seem to dedicate that bit of their brain to other things, perhaps like playing the cello. I, you have to know I got permission from Lucy before saying that. So it was great to live for a number of years in Cape Town, because in Cape Town there is a saying, you can't get lost in Cape Town. Why is that? Well, it's obvious there is an enormous mountain bang in the middle. All you need to do to, to work out where you are is to look up, judge its size, judge the profile of the mountain, and you'll know pretty much where you are, or at least that is the theory. Well, we're in the middle of this chapter that seems pretty complicated. There are all sorts of different issues going around, around sex and marriage. Then, as we've seen, Paul seems to make matters so much worse by throwing in circumcision and slavery. But in fact, this short passage that Sarah read is, if you like, the mountain in the middle. Not only in the middle of this passage and understanding this text, but in the middle of our lives as believers. We need to look up, listen, and see what Paul is saying in this bit if we're feeling lost and in need of direction. Well, it sounds like from that initial reading of it, that what he is saying is something like this. Don't bother to have any vocational aspirations. Don't worry about ambition. Don't think about your status or social mobility. You might have noticed where you can help, but notice that mantra repeated three times. Verse 17 each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned. Verse 20, again, each person should remain in the situation they were in. Again, identically, verse 24, each person should remain in the situation they were in. It's as though he's saying, make it your ambition not to have ambition. But of course, don't be deceived. Paul wants us to aim high with our lives very high, higher than any of our contemporaries. But of course, he wants us to be ambitious about something or someone that eclipses everything else. And what is that? Well, to give us a clue, in the Greek text, but lying behind this passage, Paul repeatedly uses a word, but uses it in a couple of different ways. Our translation in those verses that were repeated, teases it apart. 
by um, using two different words for that. Our translation talks about situation and calling. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. But it really reads something more like this in some translations. Each person should remain in the calling in which they were called. So what? It's as though Paul has in mind one calling that completely dwarfs the other. On one hand, God has called us to belong to him. That is monumental. We are now children in his family. And then on the other hand, he has given us different callings, different circumstances, different situations, which are important but secondary. Our problem is we tend to reverse those two things. It's all too easy to come to church on Sunday and then forget about the invisible God, to make what other people think so much more important than what God thinks. And we need to reverse that. We need to imagine that first call on our lives from God, as though it is there in enormous uppercase letters. Forget about the mountain in the middle of Cape Town. Think about Hollywood and those enormous letters on the side of a hill. And think of those words, called by God, belonging to him. And then those other callings, like our friends who are lined up here, lowercase letters, almost like names, identities, status on a badge, on a post-it note even, that might be in danger of falling off at any moment. Things that change in our lives. A call to study, a call to be a friend, a call to be a civil engineer, a call to be a DJ, a call to be a fashion designer, whatever it is, an employee, a volunteer, in a relationship. And this truth isn't new to Paul. Right at the beginning of the letter, he begins with these words. Listen to them rather than look them up. He begins, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is saying you are called to belong to God. You have been called to live distinctive lives. You have been called into relationship, fellowship with Jesus, the Son, as he will go on to say. So if we are facing life's puzzles, wondering which way to turn, struggling over a decision, we need to simply look up and remember God has called you to follow him. For Paul, this, if you like, cuts through absolutely everything. It means it simplifies things whilst also complicating them, inconveniencing us. Whatever situation I'm in, whatever things I am juggling at the moment, there is one thing that eclipses 
all other sources of status, of belonging, of direction, of identity, of purpose. Perhaps think of it this way, just as Michael brought all those people up at the front. How do you respond when someone says, what do you do? Of course, we could, if we are believers, say something like this, I am a follower of Jesus. I am a disciple of his. I struggle every single day to live his way, with his help, despite my constant failings that he forgives me for. I'm following him and navigating life his way. Oh, and I have a student loan to keep me going. Or I'm on benefits, or I'm working in the hospital, or whatever else it might be. Of course, it'd be a little bit annoying if we did respond to people that way, and a bit sanctimonious. But um, Paul wants us to think that way. He wants us to see the whole of our lives from that perspective. And for Paul, that is liberating. You might have picked up those words talking about slavery. There in verse 22, the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Likewise, the one who is free is the Lord's slave. God wants us to be liberated from family expectations, from peer pressure, from those things that culture is gradually steering us towards. And of course, to be free from the kind of pressures we put on ourselves when seeking status. We're called to follow Jesus. In an earlier letter, the letter he wrote to the churches in Galatia, Paul uses these words. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Of course, our call to follow Jesus doesn't mean that those distinctions, those differences just evaporate, but they do, in a sense, pale into insignificance in in relation to becoming one of God's children. And taking it back into our passage, going right back to the beginning of chapter 7, we're not going to look at all of it, but do follow some of these verses. Right at the beginning, he builds on what he'd said in chapter 6 in relation to those misunderstandings about the body. Verse 1, now for the matters you wrote about, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What's all that about? These are phrases, ideas that have been going around the Corinthian community. Some had been saying, well, because of if our bodies are going to be destroyed one day, it doesn't matter what we do with them. Effectively, we can engage in casual sex as much as we like. Others were coming to the opposite conclusion. They were far too spiritual for sex at all. They had forgotten what it had been designed for in the first place, and that led to a whole other set of issues. But for Paul, it is important to work out what it means to be embodied, male and female. 
He wants us to learn to live wisely with that. Far too much here for for the tail end of a sermon. But there are some clues to how we should read this. Perhaps when you go back to the safety of your own home and take a look at chapter 7. Just a few things to note. First, Paul was radically countercultural in his view of men, women, and marriage. There was a Greek saying attributed to Socrates, who of course lived a few hundred years before this was written, but it set the tone for the philosophy. He was said to say this, there are three things that I'm grateful to fortune for. First, that I was born a human being and not one of the beasts. Next, that I was born a man and not a woman. And third, a Greek and not a barbarian. And there was a Jewish take on that, a Jewish version saying, every day you should say, blessed are you, O God, that I'm not a brute creature, nor a Gentile, nor a woman. Doesn't set a great atmosphere for talking about gender relationships, does it? It meant there was pressure for girls to get married as as young as age 12 and pressure for widows to quickly remarry. It meant childbearing was for women, sexual pleasure for men. So what Paul says is radical. It is startling. He consistently emphasizes four things at the beginning of chapter 7. Four things that he picks up through his letter in relation to marriage and gender. First, equality. Second, differentiation. Third, complementarity. Fourth, mutuality, the way those things work together. Now that set of four things blindsides most simplistic Christian ways which are so often polarized in terms of viewing gender and relationships. We tend to just pick one of those things. It is revolutionary. So in verses 2 and 3, for example, talking about each man having sexual relations with his own wife, and 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to the wife, and likewise the wife to the husband, that assumes equality as well as difference. And it radically assumes that um, sexual pleasure is for both partners. The feeling is literally to be mutual. Verse 4 is perhaps even more remarkable. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. There is extraordinary equality and symmetry in that relationship and here on the matter of authority. Why is that? Because both men and women, husband and wife, obey one master, one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, who they are both called to obey. And mutuality is there in verse 5 too, when it talks about mutual 
consent in marriage. Marriage, according to Paul, is an utterly extraordinary and rich creation. And yet then, in verse 7, it's as though he immediately puts it to one side, immediately relativizes it. I wish that all of you were as I am. It's too long a discussion to enter into over exactly what Paul's status was, whether he was, um, but he was certainly at this point single. And um, it's remarkable how suddenly he turns from talking about marriage and says, well, celibacy too is a good thing. Singleness too is a good thing. And in a culture within which there was that pressure for women and girls to get married off, and for those, as we mentioned, for widows to remarry, there were to be no loose women, quite literally. Paul is telling us this revolutionary truth, that both marriage and singleness are neutral, spiritually speaking. Neither one nor the other makes anyone better or worse. And shame on us if, as a church or a Christian community, we ever give that sense. It's almost as though he's saying marriage, even in a fallen world with all the difficulties and troubles that accompany it, is appointed to a future depth of relationship that we enjoy in the Lord and will enjoy amongst God's people. And that singleness, again, despite all the struggles and difficulties tied up with it, is appointed to a future level of freedom that we will know in the new creation. He tells us to look ahead, not least as we're living in a world that is passing away. Verse 31, that is the words he uses at the end of that. We're to use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. We're to sit loose to them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Well, to say there's a lot going on in this passage is a massive understatement. But that's just one example of how it plays out, male and female. Of course, our section touches on those other two Differences that he mentions in Galatians. Those other cultural pairings, Jew, Greek, slave, free. Both of which are again eclipsed by this call to follow Jesus and identity and status in him. Just a couple of clues again as how to read this as believers. There were cultural pressures bound up with being Jewish or Greek in that context. And there were even pressures to mask that in the world of business and in making your way in the world. There'll be more said about that in later chapters. And there were also, if you were a slave, of course, encouragement and pressure towards freedom. You might think, well, of course, but the kind of slavery servanthood that's being described here was absolutely integral to the way their culture and society operated. It was wide open to abuse 
but it was not the same sort of thing as the slavery, the colonialism imposed on so many cultures. Paul, within that context, above everything else, wants them to be free to worship God. Free not to be under pressure from other people. Free not to be giving in to social constraints or their own aspirations, but free to worship him. As we come towards the end of the text, verse 32, for example, the concern around marriage and singleness is freedom to be concerned about the Lord's affairs, free to worship him. Free, verse 35, to be devoted to the Lord rather than being devoted to another set of concerns and issues. So to land this and to give you something to chew on as you perhaps discuss it with someone, how does God's upward call on my life, that call in uppercase letters, you belong to God, you are a follower of Jesus, how does that impact me today? How will it impact me when I get up tomorrow morning and engage with whatever God has called me to do? And from the perspective of that rock right in the center of my life, what pressures might I, without realizing it, be under to conform in a particular way? What aspirations might I be in danger of idolizing in my life? What relationships does this clarify? And above all, how can I continually rejoice in who I am in Christ Jesus? How can I live out my status as God's child? Amen.